the book of Samuel. Now, uh, let's pray, and then I'll catch you up to speed. Uh, before we pray, if you don't have a Bible, would you just raise your hand real quick, and we'll put a Bible in your hand. Um, and again, if, if you don't own a Bible, feel free to keep that. That's our gift to you. Uh, I just am a firm believer in producing self-feeders, meaning uh, that we're not just coming to hear the Word once or twice a week, but we're able to, to read it on a regular basis. That's how we're uh, changed, at least one of the ways. Uh, so let's pray, and then we'll... Uh, kind of catch you up to speed. Lord, we ask that you uh, would bless our time together, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would teach us the deep things of God. Lord, that we would approach this text with humility, uh, recognizing that this wasn't just a lesson for Saul, it's a lesson for us. Uh, and Lord, I pray that you would uh, bring conviction in our hearts as you um, get your word across and uh, we'd be able to to grow uh, knowing that you love us so much and you ask us to change because you love us and we're your children and you care about us. Uh, so please just uh, move in power through this time together. In your name, amen. All right, so catching you up to speed. Um, the last two weeks, we were in 1 Samuel chapter 14, uh, kind of a long chapter, and we see that it's really separated in two parts. Uh, the first half of 1 Samuel chapter 14, we see Jonathan, brave, bold, once again, he comes up against the Philistine garrison, just him and his armor bearer. He's coming up against next to impossible odds. He basically asks God to confirm that he's supposed to fight in this battle. God confirms it. The Philistines call him up and he slaughters them and this step of faith inspired faith in the rest of israel literally they came out of their caves they were hiding the slaves of the philistines that were israelites they rose up against the philistines so we see the boldness and faith of jonathan spread throughout the entire nation and we look at this first half and it's like yes they're doing so great this is an awesome victory things seem to be going on the up and up and then the second half of 1 Samuel chapter 14, Saul, trying to be spiritual, he institutes a mandatory fast. And he makes the people fast, literally in the middle of the battle. And this was simply a burden that the people couldn't bear at that time. This was foolishness on Saul's part. It wasn't the right time to fast. And we see the people literally, physically, couldn't bear this burden in this time of war. And so what they did is, not only did they break the fast, they broke God's law and they started eating the animals raw, eating them with the blood, which we discussed was a sin according to God. So as we end out the chapter in 1 Samuel chapter 14, we see the, the foolishness of Saul. And then almost contrary to that, those last few verses, we see the success of Saul. He was a valiant warrior and he overcome, overcame many of the enemies that came against Israel. But in this chapter, we will see Saul make another foolish decision and we'll see that God had a primary lesson that he was attempting to get across to Saul, but not just Saul, for us too. And it's a lesson, I believe, that we can build on each and every day. And the lesson is the title of this teaching, Obedience is Greater Than Sacrifice. Obedience is Greater Than Sacrifice. 
And we'll kind of talk about that a little bit more as we get into the text and when Samuel specifically brings it up. But let's dive into the text in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. It says, Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. When we first read this text, it's like, whoa, really, God, you're telling the Israelites to commit genocide, to literally commit genocide, to wipe out this entire people group, the infants, the nursing babies, every single one of them. Not only that, the animals and many non-believers will use this text to argue against Christianity. How can you say God is loving and good and sovereign and, and he orders babies to get killed he orders genocide he orders his people literally to commit genocide how is this not murder this is a a monstrous god how could he be good and many people will use these arguments from texts like this to prove that point but this is uh explainable and i'll do it uh in a few different ways uh we see there's a specific purpose uh that's laid out by god and why he's attempting to destroy destroy all the Amalekites uh, through Israel. And it says, I'll read it for you. He says, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him, verse two, on the way when he came up from Egypt. So God put points to the primary reason. We'll discuss that one first. Then we'll talk about some other things. This is really interesting in God's sovereignty. As I was studying this text, uh, there's this apologetics class that I'm taking right now. I had to write a paper on this text just last week as I was studying. It was so cool. Uh, so it's, it's pretty fresh. Uh, but if you look at Exodus chapter 17, in Exodus chapter 17, we see uh, the situation that the Lord is referring to, why he's punishing Amalek, okay? Now, verse 8, now Amalek came and fought with Israel and Rephidim. Now, basically what happened was as Israel was leaving Egypt in, in the wilderness, uh, attempting to enter into the promised land for those 40 years, the nation of the Amalekites just started attacking them. And they literally, if you read, they started attacking the people that were the weakest, the people in the back, the elderly, the children. Look what it says in verse 9. And Moses said to Joshua, choose uh, some men and go out fight with Amalek tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand so Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek and Moses Aaron and her went up to the top of the hill and so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed and when he uh, let down his hand Amalek prevailed but Moses hands uh, became weary so they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it and Aaron and her supported his hands one on one side and the other on the other side and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun so Joshua defeated Amalek and his people at the edge of the sword look at verse 14 then the Lord said to Moses write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will Will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under 
heaven. So this was a promise of God. They hadn't completely destroyed the Amalekites in that text. See, the Amalekites, if you look at the beginning of that chapter, as I mentioned, they were attacking the weak, the vulnerable uh, that were in the back of the line, if you will. And this was for no other reason other than just just anger and hatred and, and, and just trying to destroy these people because they felt like it. It wasn't like Israel was threatening them. Israel wasn't coming to fight a battle against them. They just simply took advantage of these vulnerable vulnerable people. So God says there in Exodus chapter 17, hey, one of these days we're going to utterly wipe out the Amalekites because of what they did. However, this is the primary reason that God points to, but there are also several other possibilities. And, 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 you know, when the Lord does something, there's usually more than one reason why he's doing that. Uh, so I want to talk about some more of these possibilities just so that we can kind of wrap our mind around this logically to see how a good, an omnibenevolent, all good God can commit or order his people to commit genocide and how it's actually not evil, but in fact, it's good. See, when you look at the Amalekites, God, being sovereign, being all-knowing, he knew what they were going to become. So if God knows what this people group is going to become, and he saw fit that it was better for them to be wiped out other than, other than them commit these atrocities, not just against Israel, but the other surrounding nations, then it would make sense that he would wipe these people out. And we'll see throughout the Bible, they are atrocious people. But we also have to look at the standard that God set for his people when they left Egypt and entered into Israel. Remember, on Mount Sinai, God, he gave Israel, through Moses, a law, right? Uh, you have 613 Levitical laws, but really the Ten Commandments sum up the law that was given to Moses. Now, this standard was a moral standard that no other people group had. And God was calling his people to be set apart from the other nations. And the way they were set apart from the other nations is obviously worshiping the true and living God, but also keeping this moral standard that the other people were not keeping. Now, this moral moral standard, it wasn't just put in place so the people could be good. The moral standard was a criteria. It was an opportunity for the people to show whether or not they truly loved God or not, whether or not they truly wanted relationship with God. He set up these rules. He set up these laws and he says, this, this is what it looks like to be in relationship with me. If you want to be in relationship with me, not only will you keep this law, Though we know it was impossible. That's a side story. But not only will you keep this, but, but you'll purpose to hold other people to this law. So God gave the people this moral standard. And this moral standard, again, was a standard that set the people apart. Now, what did Israel keep doing? And we especially see this uh, in the book of Judges, when they didn't have a judge. They kept falling back into the lifestyle of the other nations, right? They kept doing what all the other nations do. In fact, even in 1 Samuel, that's why they asked for a king. They wanted to be like the other nations. So God was trying to make them be a nation set apart, and they kept wanting to be like everybody else. They wanted to be like the world and they kept breaking God's law and worshiping other gods and breaking all these commandments that God gave. Now, 
in their effort, their desire to be like the other nations. They ask for a king. God says, okay, I'm going to give you a king. He warns them about what's going to happen. But he still wants them to keep his standard. So Saul, as the first king of Israel, right? The very first king of Israel has an opportunity as the first king to enforce God's law. If Saul will enforce God's law, then the people are more likely to enforce and walk in God's law. So he gives Saul literally a redemptive chance. Because remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 13, he broke the law. He provided a sacrifice as if he was a priest. And we know that that was wrong. He has a chance of redemption to lead the people in following God's law. And not only that, enforcing this law, enforcing a moral standard that the Amalekites were not following. And this was his opportunity. To lead the people in obedience to the word. And we'll see what happens. He's not going to do this. He's not going to be obedient to the word of God. But what we're also going to see later in this text. Is the Amalekites and the rest of the Bible. They're not destroyed. They're not utterly destroyed. They they don't. It doesn't happen. We'll see David have to fight them later. We'll see uh, an Amalekite uh, by the name of Haman in in the book of Esther that we'll uh, refer to. So if you look at this context and see that God commanded the people to utterly destroy the Amalekites, then why didn't it happen? Was it really God's intention for the Amalekites to be completely destroyed? Or did he have uh, another motivation Behind commanding this. Because let's be real. We see it in other scriptures. If God wanted the Amalekites to be destroyed. He could have killed them all. He did it with Sodom and Gomorrah. He did it with the flood of Noah. God has has uh, no inability to destroy or wipe out people groups. He can do it himself. But he had the Israelites do this again. So that they could enforce God's law. But when you look at the fact that he didn't destroy all the Amalekites. Then it poses the question, did he have another purpose in this? Perhaps this was for the benefit of the Amalekites. What? Why? How would genocide benefit the Amalekites? Follow me. Because he was trying to not just have Israel establish this moral standard, but he was trying to show the Amalekites which way to live is unacceptable. What you guys are doing, the idolatry, the murder, the fornication, all these different things, it's not going to fly. And he used Israel as his enforcers in other words. And because we see Amalekites later in scripture, perhaps knowing that God desires that no man perish and all men come to repentance, maybe this was a lesson for the Amalekites that he had to destroy some so that others will be saved in the future. And you just look at this standard that God's trying to establish, not just with Israel, but with the surrounding nations. God's desire has always been for all men to be saved. Though Israel was his chosen people, he chose them to be set apart, but he still was using that standard to get the attention of the surrounding nations. But look what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 15. He also told him to kill all the animals in verse three, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. If it's about morality and God establishing his moral standard and telling the Amalekites, essentially, this isn't okay the way that you're living. 
you want to turn from these things, if you want to repent, uh, I'm here. But they simply wouldn't. Why kill the animals? Well, you have to look back in that culture. Uh, animals, um, they represented wealth. That was like the, the greatest goods people had. They had donkeys, they had sheep, they had goats, they had cows. They had all these different animals. And it rep- represented the wealth of the people and the surrounding nations, the other armies, what they would do is they'd go into other villages, attack other nations, and plunder their goods. Literally, take all their animals. They'd take slaves too. So God's saying, he's telling them to kill the animals so that the other nations see that Israel is, is a different type of nation. They're not doing this for their own benefit. They're not attacking the Amalekites for their own good. They're doing this all for the glory of God. It has nothing to do with their personal benefit. This is a different type of army. This is an army that fights with selfishness, just trying to get good. This is an army that stands for this moral standard that God has established. So he tells them to kill the animals as well. Which we'll see they don't do that either. And lastly, before we move on, we also have to look at a crucial law that the Lord delegated in Deuteronomy chapter 20. And I think this clears up everything. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 10, these were the laws of of warfare that God instituted. And look what he says in verse 10. He's talking about when they enter the promised land, okay? When you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an, uh, then proclaim an offer of peace to it, okay? Before you attack the country or the nation or the people group, offer peace. And it says in verse 11, and it shall be that if they accept your offer of peace and open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. Now, if the city will not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. So the peace offering is there for anyone and everyone uh, in the promised land. The surrounding nations of Israel, they had to offer peace and they had offered peace in the past. The point is, you can't have peace without the Prince of Peace. And by them saying that, no, we're not going to take your peace offering. It wasn't directly uh, against Israel. It was directly against the God Israel served. So they're saying, we don't want the peace offering of God. And when we choose not to accept the peace offering of God through the blood of the lamb and what Jesus died on the cross, then essentially we're choosing to be at war with God. We can't have peace without the Prince of Peace. Without the Prince of Peace, we're choosing war. So the Amalekites, they already made this decision in their history. They didn't accept the peace offering. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 4. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them with Talim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah, a lot more than they had last time, And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from 
Havila, I don't know if that's how you say it, and all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt, he also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. So in the beginning... It looks good. He gathers an army. Okay, Saul's going to repent. He's going to walk in obedience. He's going to going to establish the moral standard of God. He's going to lead the people and following the word of God, things are going to change. And then obviously, he doesn't do what God asked him to do. He takes King Agag, which was the king of the Amalekites. And typically, the surrounding nations, what they would do is they would, when they ta- attacked a nation, they would take the king as a trophy. Be like, oh, look, we got the king of this place. Now, we don't know for sure why Saul uh, took King Agag as, as a prisoner. It could have been because he was just being like the other nations and that's what the culture was. So that's what he did. Or perhaps he had a different reason. Maybe he was thinking, well, if they, if the Amalekites attack me another time, I want them to save me and not destroy me. Uh, he could have come up with any reason that he wanted to not to obey the Lord, but none of the reasons were good enough. Not only did he take the king, look, he took all the good animals. Verse 9, but Saul and, Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. See, Saul partially did what God asked him to do, but he didn't fully do what God asked him to do. And this is point number one. Partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. God clearly said, right, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 3, that you're to destroy everything, everyone. Don't let anything survive, even the animals. And Saul, sadly, didn't take the Lord at his word. And why is this such a big deal? Well, it gives the surrounding nations the wrong impression. They're just like the other nations. They do exactly what the other nations do. They're not set apart. They're not fighting for God. They're fighting for themselves. They take the trophy like the uh, like the rest of the kings, uh, the rest of the nations do uh, in the form of the king. They take the best of the of the valuable goods and food and 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 sheep and oxen and all these different animals. They're just like the rest of the world. The standard was given to them for them to be set apart. Even this direction and the way God communicated it to wipe out everyone was to solidify this standard to be that nation set apart, but they did exactly what all the other nations do. Now, there's also a spiritual, couple spiritual application uh, biblical principles to pull from this. Of course, God has called us to be set apart. He sets us apart by his word and through a relationship with us. And we see that in John chapter 17, among other places. And when we look just like the world, when we're doing what everyone else is doing, how can we call ourselves Christians? How can we call ourselves followers of God? We can't. If we look just like the world, then we're of the world. God says to be a friend with the world is to be an enemy of God. So it's one or the other. He draws the line in the sand. And he says, you want to be in the world? Be in the world. 
But if you want to be in my world, be in my world. And he invites us into his world. But that world looks a lot different than the rest of the world. And part of that world is living within the criteria, the word of God that he establishes. Now, Amalekites are also a type of the flesh. You see this with many, uh, many people groups who are enemies of God. And when I say a type of flesh, uh, flesh is typically uh, in reference to our carnal sinful nature, our carnal sinful desires. Okay, The Amalekites represent a type of the flesh. They're all about fulfilling the flesh. Eat, drink, sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever. Not that they had that back then, but that's the idea, okay? This is the type of people that it was, and God says to utterly destroy it. He calls us to utterly destroy the flesh. Our sinful nature, our sinful desires, he says it all has to go. In fact, in Galatians chapter 5, he tells us to crucify it. Look at this. In Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, verse 24 It says, in those who are Christ, meaning Christians, those who are his, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This isn't a suggestion. This is a command. The Lord says, if you're Christ, that means you crucify the flesh. Now, this does not mean that we're all perfect. This crucifixion of the flesh, it's a process. It it takes time. But when we see it come out, whatever that sinful desire may be, maybe it's a habit that keeps coming up time and time again. Maybe it's a habit or or just an act that came out of left field. Maybe it's a thought when we see it, we're called to kill it. We're called to kill it completely. Because when we don't utterly destroy it, we'll see later on in this text, it'll come back to haunt us. They were called to completely kill the Amalekites, not partially. That's often what we do with our sin. We'll take out the things that, that, that we are okay with giving up. I'll, I'll stop doing these things and I'll stop doing that, those things. But there's these certain sins. There's, there are these certain desires that I have. There are these certain parts of the flesh that I want to keep and I'm not ready to give them up. I understand that. But the Bible tells us that it's all got to go. Every single bit of it. First Samuel chapter 15, verse 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I've set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel and he cried out to the Lord all night. God said he regretted making this decision. Does that mean that God made a mistake? No, it doesn't. Okay, it's this big word. Hopefully I say it right. It's referred to as an anthropomorphism. Okay, you don't have to write that down. Just follow me. Basically, uh, it's when we see in Scripture, uh, God will communicate to us on His level. Uh, and typically, anthropomorphisms are referring to when God uh, basically gives Himself human attributes so that we can understand what He's saying. Uh, because God is so much bigger than us. His, his brain is bigger. His thoughts are bigger. His ways are bigger. Uh, and sometimes He brings it down to human terms it would be like talking to a child you know like we can't use the i couldn't use that big word talking to judy doesn't probably understand anything i say uh but we can't use these huge words talking to children we got to break it down so they understand on a simpler level that's what god essentially is doing uh here when he says i regret it this wasn't a mistake 
Why? Because God said from the beginning, when he chose Saul, this is going to go badly for you guys. He's going to take everything from you. This isn't going to be good. He says, he told the people that you're going to regret that you put this guy in power, that he became the king. So when he says he regrets it, what he's saying is, I'm saddened by it. My heart breaks for it. Uh, because he knew it was going to happen, but he still wanted it to work out with Saul, but it simply didn't. He didn't obey the voice of God. He didn't follow his commandments. God gave him chance and chance after chance, and he did not follow the Lord, his God. And we see the the compassion of God. He wasn't like, I told you so. I told you this was going to go bad. No, he didn't say that. His heart was broken over this situation. He wanted it to work out, even though he knew it wasn't going to work out. So he says, I'll reread verse 11. I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Says he turned back from following me because he has not performed my commandments. There's a direct correlation between following God and keeping his commandments. It's an obvious one, but I'm still going to say it. This is point number two. To be a follower of God is to be obedient to God. To be a follower of God is to be obedient to God. I hear a lot of people say, I'm a follower of Christ. Sometimes that's true. But those two things are connected. He says, He didn't follow me because he didn't obey me. They have to go together. If we're saying we're following Jesus, we have to be obedient to him. I get we make mistakes, but but we have to be determined to make less and less mistakes as time goes on in our walk with the Lord. Now, when we look at obedience, I think sometimes we get the wrong idea. We can look at God and say, Oh, are you like this big, bad dictator that that you have to tell me how to live and put all these barriers in my life and it's all about you can't do this and you can't do that? That's not how it is. When God gives us direction, and I kind of mentioned this earlier with Israel, when God gives us things to do, when he gives us his word, what he's doing is he's creating a framework, a criteria of what a relationship like it with him looks like. So he gives us his word. This is what relationship with me looks like. You don't have to have it, but if you want it, I, I want to invite you to have it. But it looks like living within this this criteria, with within these boundaries. In fact, Jesus says uh, in John, uh, he, he says, "If you love me, keep my commandments." Uh, obedience is is the Lord's uh, love language, if you will. If you truly love me, you're going to live within these boundaries. And not just for me, but also for you. We know it benefits us more than anything when we live in the boundaries of God's word. When we live outside of God's word, we're a mess. We're miserable. We're depressed. We're sad. God does not want that for us. He wants us to experience the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace. That only exists when we're living by the word of God. When we're not experiencing love, when we're not experiencing joy, when we're not experiencing peace, it's either because we're being disobedient to the, to the word of God, the criteria that he set up, or there's some disconnect with our relationship with him, which is typically rooted back in being disobedient to the word. It would be like this. It's kind of like wedding vows, okay? Think of God's, like, God's, God's uh, word is like wedding vows, okay? These are the things that I'm committing to, and if I step outside of these vows, then I'm not really honoring this commitment. I know I was emotional, and I said all these things to death to us part, but, you know, right now I'm not feeling it. 
It's like, wait, no. Basically, when we when we commit to the Lord in a relationship with him, he likens it to a marriage. His word is essentially like wedding vows. And we learn them as we go and we understand what this criteria is. But it's not just something that we say. It's not just something that we memorize. It's something that we walk in. If we truly want to live within the the love-based relationship of God, it looks like doing what he asks us to do in his word. We can't say that we're followers of Christ if we're not trying, at least. We're not trying to be obedient to his word. He says, he didn't follow me because he didn't keep my word. Now, picking it back up, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 12. 1 Samuel 15, 12. So when Samuel rose, uh, rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed, he set up a monument for himself, and he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I'm sorry, I can't read this without laughing. Like, this is, this is crazy. This is absolutely crazy. He was disobedient, and then he sets up a monument for himself. Like, he's praising himself. He's, he's basically proud in his accolades. He doesn't see what he's actually done. But this is the nature of Saul. He's more concerned with his accolades than he is with his relationship with God. It's all about what he's accomplishing. And the things that he thinks he's accomplishing is actually bringing more and more separation between him and the Lord. We see essentially the opposite of this in the New Testament through another person named Saul, later named Paul, in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, I won't read all of it, uh, kind of summarize. Uh, basically, what, what, what uh, Paul is doing in the first seven verses uh, is he's, accumu- uh, he's, he's communicating all his accolades. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Um, I, I, according to the law, blameless, of the tribe of Benjamin, he, he's saying who he was. He's talking about his righteousness. And then look what he says in verse 8. Yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. He says, everything I've ever done, I count it as trash compared to knowing Jesus Christ. My accolades, they mean nothing. The only thing that means anything to me is a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. This was the mindset of Paul. This was not the mindset of Saul. He's making a monument. He's talking himself up. He thinks he's done this great thing. He doesn't even realize the Lord isn't even with him in this moment to a degree. And he says, look, look what he says to Samuel in verse 13. Then Samuel went to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I've, perfor- I've done it. I did what God asked me to do. He's so blinded. He's blinded by pride. His pride is leading to self-deception. He doesn't see his sin for what it is. He didn't obey the voice of God. We can all say, God told him to destroy everything. He didn't destroy everything. It's clear disobedience and he doesn't see it. He's thinking, I was partially obedient, so therefore I was fully obedient. We can do that too. Well, I'm obedient with most things. 
I'm 90% obedient, so I'm obedient. Nope, that's not true. (laughs) You're disobedient. We already made that point. But that's the mentality that Saul has. I think we have the same mentality. Often, for the most part, I'm obedient. The Bible says that's not obedience. Obedience is 100%, especially when we look at the context of this scripture. And often our pride can get the best of us like it did Saul. And we can be blinded. We can be self-deceived and we don't see our sin for what it actually is. What aren't you seeing in your life? What, what sin is there that, that you don't really see that's there? Where are you self-deceived? I think we all have issues with this. I think there's areas in each of our lives that we don't always see. Maybe sometimes we see it, but sometimes we don't see it. And sometimes we need a person like Samuel to, to tell us how it is like he will do in a moment so that we can see it. But there's also a very powerful prayer in Psalm 139, verses uh, 23 to 24. Psalm 139, 23 to 24. Uh, uh, the psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me. In humility. God, if there's something I'm not seeing in my life, show it to me. I wouldn't want to look foolish like Saul looks in this text. I want to... See it for what it is, because more often than not, everybody else can see it and we don't always see it. We need to be able to see it so we can take care of it. Samuel's going to make sure that that happens in the next few verses here. Verse 14. But Samuel said, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. They, he's blaming it on the people. He'll do this again. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. He claims this is for God. Okay, he's doing this for God. We brought all the good sheep or they did like the people that were following me. I didn't like tell them to do that. They were just decided to do that. I don't know why, but I let them do it. Uh, but we were doing this for God. Okay, he's over spiritualizing his sin. And we can do this too. We can justify sin, over-spiritualize it. This was for God. I did this great act for God. It was for you. You did it for yourself. Don't say that you did it for God. If you did it for yourself, that's exactly what Saul is doing. And it says in verse 16, Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet! (laughs) Exclamation point. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. So Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes... Were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? So Samuel, this seems a little harsh, but he cuts him off. He says, Be quiet, passionately. But we got to remember, just the night before, Samuel was weeping, weeping over Saul. Samuel loves Saul. He cares about them. This isn't just like an anger, self-righteous thing. He genuinely is concerned about his brother. And he says, in love, be quiet. In Proverbs chapter 27, Proverbs chapter 27, Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6. It says this. 
open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. You hear what he says? This book of wisdom, open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. And faithful are the wounds of a friend. Those that love us the most aren't afraid to tell us the truth. And those that are afraid to tell us the truth are afraid to love us. See, Samuel didn't keep his mouth shut. He genuinely loved Saul. And because he loved Saul, he told him the truth. Now we have this problem uh, like Saul. Uh, We have this thing called pride. And we don't always like to receive correction. And we don't like to be rebuked. Nobody likes to be told, be quiet and listen to what I have to say. But when we filter that through a spiritual lens and see the love through that rebuke, faithful are the wounds of a friend because they care. We'll be able to receive it. We'll be able to do something with it. We'll be able uh, to allow that rebuke to change us from the inside out. And look what, look at how Saul responds. He says, be quiet, right? Samuel tells him to be quiet. He says, speak on. It's like he's trying to establish his authority over Samuel. He told him to be quiet. He should just be quiet. He's saying, speak on as if, uh, as if Saul has to give Samuel permission to rebuke him. You just see the, uh, the, the progression of Saul. He's getting more and more prideful. He's getting worse and worse as time goes on. This kingship has really gotten to his head. But Samuel, in love, look at what he says in verse 19. After he basically says, hey, this is how you sinned. He calls him out. But then he gives him a chance to respond. He says, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? He gives him a chance. Okay, I'm going to give you a chance to explain this. No matter what, what you did was wrong, but I'm going to give you a chance. And really, he's given him an opportunity to confess. And Saul does not seize this opportunity in the way that he should have. Look what he says in verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Okay, those two things are contrary. He just said, I brought back King Agag and I utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Agag is the king of the Amalekites. So you didn't. He just confessed his sin without actually confessing. At least he admitted to it. He didn't destroy them. See, we also know, not to ruin the story, Agag is going to die at the end. But as I mentioned before, um, the Amalekites, they weren't utterly destroyed. They weren't completely destroyed. Uh, we'll see later on, David ends up having to fight the Amalekites. And as I mentioned before, uh, we also see uh, Haman um, is from the Agites, which is believed to be from this lineage, the Amalekites. So we see this lineage of Amalekites continue to cause devastation against Israel. But something's kind of interesting here. Uh, we'll get into it a little bit later on our studies. But there's uh, an interesting text in Second Samuel chapter 1. Now I'm going to give you my opinion about this. But it's still interesting to look and we'll still pull a biblical principle out of it regardless. It's actually an Amalekite that claims that claims to kill King Saul later on in life. Okay, and it says in Second Samuel chapter one, verse six, 
Then the young man who told him said, as it happened by chance to be on Mount Gilead, where Saul was leaning on a spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now, when he looked behind him, he saw me and called me, and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? So I answered, I'm an Amalekite. He said to me again, please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him. Okay, this Amalekite, he comes to David and claims to kill King Saul. But look back at 1 Samuel chapter 31. Should be on the same page or maybe a page over in verse 4. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul, Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Okay, so people have different opinions about this. Was Saul actually dead and did he kill himself? I personally believe he did. I personally believe that the Amalekite was lying, okay, thinking that he was going to gain favor with David. But people have good explanations for why they believe that the Amalekite was telling the true story. He says that he saw Saul fall on a spear. Saul, we see in the scripture, he fell on a sword. So there's a difference there. You can justify that. Regardless, the point is... Uh, whether he's lying or not, the Amalekites are a picture of the flesh. And because Saul didn't utterly do what God called him to do, he didn't utterly destroy the flesh, the flesh came back to haunt him. Okay, whether the guy did it or not, it's true for us when we don't fulfill that calling to destroy the flesh, it will come back to haunt us. When we're not completely obedient to the Lord, it will come back to haunt us. And then again, with Haman in the book of Esther, he tries to wipe out all the Israelites. So it doesn't just affect Saul, it affected the whole nation. His disobedience did. Picking it back up in First Samuel chapter 15. Verse 21. <clears throat> but the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, so he's blaming it on the people again, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness Stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He also has rejected you from being king. Point number three, to obey is better than to sacrifice. To obey is better than to sacrifice. Sometimes we try to uh, substitute sacrifice for obedience and we'll do this in so many different ways. If I just give my time uh, then I don't have to be fully obedient. But, but time or service isn't, isn't a, a substitution for obedience. Neither is tithing. Neither is, is coming to church. Neither is praying. Neither is reading the word. Whatever thing or resources or time we sacrifice to God 
It is no substitution for obedience. There is no substitution for obedience. Now, those things that I listed are avenues of obedience, and I'm definitely not telling you don't do those things, but we can do this. We can have this mentality. Uh, well, if I, if I just serve a little more, then I won't feel as bad about my sin. If I, if I, you know, make sure I'm doing these things, then I don't feel as bad that I'm not doing this thing. And we can do that because we're sick. But the word says very clearly to obey is better than sacrifice. The Lord doesn't want our sacrifices if we're not being obedient to him. He's calling us for full-fledged obedience. Now, that also doesn't mean that we're not called to sacrifice, because we certainly are called to sacrifice. In fact, in Romans chapter uh, 12, verses 1 and 2, it says that we're called to give our bodies as a living sacrifice, uh, or in other words, give our entire lives, heart, soul, mind, and strength to the Lord as a sacrifice. Dedicate that to Him. But again, we can't use sacrifice as a substitution for obedience and then he lists some of Saul's sin he lists rebellion why because obviously he wasn't obeying God he lists stubbornness why because he was set in his ways what he thought was was more important than what God's word says he mentions idolatry why because Saul was his own king Saul was his own God he put himself in the place of God We can do that too. We can put ourselves in the place of God. We're God over our lives, but it's simply not true. That's why Samuel calls him out for that. And he says, because of these things, God has rejected you from being king. Well, we already saw this back in 1 Samuel chapter 13, that God rejected him because he provided the sacrifices. So this leads to the question, would would have God relented if Saul repented? Would Would God have said, Hey, this is your chance to, to be the leader that, that follows my word, to establish my standard of morality, to lead the people in, in following the word of God. What would have happened? We have no idea. God said that he was going to judge them, but we've seen in scripture certain times when God said he was going to judge people like Nineveh and Jonah. He gives them a chance to repent. I personally believe that this chapter is Saul's opportunity to repent. And he's stuck in his ways. He continues to walk in disobedience. So basically, God has another reason to say, no, I have to. I have to reject you. You had another opportunity. You rejected the opportunity. So he rejects him as king of Israel. Now, this wouldn't happen for another 25 years. God's judgment often lingers. And we can even think like that. Oh, I got away with it. It's not going to come back to, to get me. That's not always true. Uh, often uh, we'll face consequences for our sin from, from years ago. Even me now, like <laughs> uh, debt. I have no more debt. Uh, but because I made so many foolish decisions when uh, I was in my addiction and just getting any credit card that I could and trying to get it money from anywhere and everywhere, I blew my credit and it's taking me years to build it back. God didn't just say, poof, your credit is good now. No, I'm still suffering consequences from that. It's getting up there now. I'm not going to share my credit score with you guys. What? It's not bad. It's not great, but it's getting there. Anyways. We can still suffer consequences. The, the judgment often lingers. And that's what we'll see with Saul as we continue to study uh, this chapter. Moving on. Verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, 
I have sinned, for I transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the, feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. See what he says? Now he confesses I've sinned. Why? Because Samuel just said, God's rejected you from being king. This is not godly sorrow. This is worldly sorrow. Now that he sees the consequences, I sinned. I'm confessing. This is not sincere repentance. This is worldly sorrow. I don't want to face the consequences, so I'll fess up just so that you can pardon me from my sin and I'll get to keep the kingdom. This isn't a repentance that saves. It's not a repentance that's real. It's not a repentance that sticks. Please pardon my sin. Yeah. As if, if Samuel just says your sins are pardoned, everything's going to be okay. He doesn't want to address the issue of his heart. He just wants someone to tell him he's forgiven. Now, it's important to hear that we're forgiven, but the Lord doesn't just forgive us. It says that he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Everybody wants forgiveness. People don't always like that cleansing part. That cleansing of unrighteousness often looks like like discipline. God doesn't just want to forgive us. He wants to cleanse us. He wants to prevent us from falling back into the same sin anymore. And this is something that Saul doesn't want. He just wants the forgiveness. He doesn't want the cleansing. He doesn't want to change. He just wants to be forgiven. The Lord will forgive us, but he also wants to cleanse us. He wants to change us from the inside out. Moving on, verse 26. I'll try to finish this last part. As quick as I can. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. So the reason that Saul wants to go back with Samuel is so that Samuel will honor him amongst the people. This has nothing to do with God. He just wants the people to see that he's in right standing because Samuel, and they have respect for Samuel, is, is there by his side. Samuel's still supporting him, so that means God's supporting him. And this was not about getting back in right relationship with God. This was about politics and appearing a certain way. So this illustration just comes about. He goes to grab Samuel and uh, his robe is torn from his hand and Samuel uses the illustration uh, to tell him this is how you've been gripping the kingdom of God you've been gripping it with a tight fist as if it's yours but it's not God's kingdom is his kingdom you are a steward as king of God's kingdom so he tears this out of his hands and we can do this too we can hold tight to to blessings to positions to 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 whatever and when we hold it too tight sometimes God has to tear it out of our hands. Uh, the Lord gives and takes away and he wants to give, but sometimes he knows he needs to take away. Sometimes he knows he needs to tear that thing out of our hand. And that was the best thing he could do for Saul in this situation. Verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me. Again, it's the political thing that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. So Samuel gives in. Why would Samuel give in? Maybe he thinks God can change Saul through this act of worship. Maybe he thinks there's a small chance that Saul is going to sincerely worship God this time and something's going to change, okay? I believe Samuel does this just because he has a little bit of hope that God can still do a radical work in Saul. We'll see it doesn't happen, sadly, but picking it back up, verse 32 
Then Samuel said, bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously, and Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. So King Agag is like, oh, the old prophet, I'm good now, I'm going to be forgiven. He's wrong. Verse 33, but Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. See, God used Samuel to do what Saul wasn't willing to do. And when God gives us a mission in life and we don't step up to it and we don't do it, he's just going to choose someone else. He invites us to be a part of his mission for our benefit. He's going to get his mission accomplished regardless of whether or not we're a part of it. But when we choose not to be a part of it, we're the ones that miss out. God was going to make sure this happened regardless. And he had to use Samuel because Saul wasn't willing. Lastly, verse 34. Then Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So Samuel and Saul go their separate ways. These decisions, this disobedience, it costs Saul severely. And that's the fourth and final point. It's, it's a quick one. Disobedience is costly. Disobedience is costly. Think about all he lost. He lost his kingdom. He lost his position as a king. He lost his relationship with God and he lost his relationship with Samuel. They go their separate ways. They're no longer friends. Now, where they live is only 10 miles apart. That's not very far in that culture. And they still didn't come to see each other. Samuel, I believe, didn't come to see Saul because he thought there's nothing else I can do for him. I can't do anything. I can't be a supporter of him because he's not seeking the Lord. I believe Samuel gave Saul over to his sin in hopes that he would come to seek the Lord, that he would sincerely worship the Lord so that the Lord could change his heart. As we see with Saul, he makes another foolish decision. And as we study Saul, it's easy to get very critical of him because uh, uh, his sin's very black and white. And we can read it like, so obvious, you said you killed all the Amalekites, utterly destroyed them, but you saved King Agad. Like, duh, you're, you're still in sin. That's obvious. But I think, in humility, we can relate to a lot of the things that Saul struggled with. And ultimately, the primary lesson that the Lord was trying to get across is that obedience is greater than sacrifice. If you're just sacrificing all these different things and resources and time and effort and energy for me, but you're not being obedient, you're not doing what I ask you to do. And what the Lord asks us to do is walk obedient to the word, to live in that barrier, that criteria of relationship, not just for him, but for us. He was told to utterly destroy the Amalekites and he didn't do it. He was a little obedient, but not completely obedient. And it cost him dearly. Is there an area in your life that you know the Lord told you to do something specifically and you kind of took one step or you did it partially, but you still have another foot in the other door and you're still maybe like the world and the other nations? The Lord is calling us to radical obedience, a a radical crucifixion of the flesh until 
We purpose in our hearts to do that. We're in a lot of ways very similar to Saul. Making sacrifices but not choosing obedience. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for conviction. And God, we know that that we can relate to some of the same struggles that Saul had. Lord, and we pray that we wouldn't be blinded. We wouldn't look foolish. That we would see our sins for what they are. Not to feel bad. Not to be self-condemned. But to be delivered. To be freed. So that we can walk in repentance. That we can choose uh, radical obedience. That we can uh, cut all those desires of the flesh away. So that we can live in the, the freedom the love, the peace, the joy that you desire for us, God. So, so let this not just be a, a, a message that we, um, that we hear, Lord, but, but let this be something that, that we really uh, take to heart and examine our lives and, and do something with it, Lord. We know that your word is living and powerful and it changes us from the inside out. So I pray that that, that would be true uh, even now, even right now. In your name, amen.